Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Today is Saturday, June 12th, 2021. On this day in 1963, civil rights activist Medgar Evers was assassinated by a white supremacist. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a Spotify original from Parcast. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions and discussions of murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Today we're covering the day a white supremacist assassin killed Medgar Evers. Let's go back to Jackson, Mississippi on June 12, 1963. Merle Evers stayed up past midnight. She waited eagerly for her husband, 37-year-old Medgar, to come home after spending days away on business. There was so much they needed to discuss. Just hours before, on the evening of June 11th, President John F. Kennedy addressed the nation. He acknowledged that he'd intervened to help two black students enter the University of Alabama after the governor blocked the entrance. The president insisted that the unrest in places like Birmingham could not continue. Kennedy put his full support behind civil rights and pleaded with Americans to support men and women of color. Murley watched the speech with her three young children. With segregation and the local Ku Klux Klan chapter booming, she wasn't sure if this was going to make things better or worse. Murley herself was a proud NAACP member, and Medgar was a major civil rights leader in Mississippi. After defending the world from Nazis in World War II, Medgar returned home to a hostile America. Over a decade of fearless campaigning, hardly any other individual at the time brought more change to a single state than Medgar. He fought primarily against segregation in schools and commercial zones and became the NAACP's first field officer in Mississippi. But on June 11, 1963, as he drove home from an arduous day with NAACP lawyers, Medgar knew his life was at risk. Just days before, someone had tried to run him down in the street, but nothing prepared him for what was waiting at home. Just after midnight, when Medgar pulled into his driveway, the heat from the day was gone and a comfortable chill had taken over. Stepping out of the car, he noticed immediately that something was off. When he realized what it was, his blood chilled. With Medgar receiving so many regular death threats, at least two FBI cars usually tailed him between appointments. But that night, the cars were gone. He didn't know why, and nobody could ever explain afterward why they were missing. 
Medgar ducked into his car to retrieve some shirts he just got made that said, Jim Crow must go. He shut the car door and turned toward the house. He was eager to see his family again. Just inside, Merle and their three children were still awake and waiting for him. But across the street, hiding in the shadows, 52-year-old Byron Della Beckwith chambered around into his Enfield rifle. He aimed at the center of Medgar's back and fired. Merle heard the gunshot from inside the house. She and Medgar had trained their children for this day, and she marshaled them into the bathroom. They laid down in the tub, just as their parents had taught them, but no amount of preparation made it any less terrifying. Merle rushed outside and found Medgar laying in a puddle of his own blood. He had staggered 30 feet toward the house after being shot. Merle cradled his head, trying to wake him up, but her husband was unresponsive. Soon the children came outside, horrified at the sight of their father's body. Neighbors helped get Medgar into a car and drove him to the nearby Jackson Hospital. When they arrived, the staff turned them away at first. The building was whites only. Merle fought with the staff until they accepted Medgar into surgery, but the damage was just too great. He died at the hospital just 50 minutes after he was shot. News of the murder shocked the nation, but even as the fight over segregation heated up, Medgar's murderer knew he was going to get away with it. Up next, justice for Medgar drags for 30 years. Hi, listeners. It's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own. Or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. On June 12, 1963, an assassin killed civil rights leader Medgar Evers in front of his house. Protesters marched in Medgar's honor, wielding signs proclaiming him as a civil rights martyr. The protest in Jackson resulted in the brutal arrest of over a hundred nonviolent marchers. On June 19th, 3,000 people attended his funeral, which received full military honors. A former chairman of the American Veterans Committee spoke at the service, calling Medgar a brave and courageous soldier to the end. 
Then on June 23, 1963, police arrested fertilizer salesman Byron Della Beckwith. Although authorities connected Byron's Enfield rifle to the assassination, Byron wasn't going to remain behind bars for long. He was a well-connected man among local law. Powerful men in the government and military paid Byron visits in jail. Although those conversations remain a mystery, Byron's affiliation with police, the White Citizens Council, and the KKK hint at what was said. During the trial, when Murley took the stand to testify, a surprise guest stormed into the courtroom. Mississippi Governor Ross Barnett marched down the center of the galleys. With everyone watching, Barnett seized Byron's hand and shook it. Then he sat with the accused murderer as Murley continued her testimony. The trial continued downhill from there. Byron's defense team argued that someone broke into his home and stole the rifle before the murder. Meanwhile, Byron fabricated an alibi with help from Jackson police, his former employers. Two different all-white juries acquitted Byron. When Byron got away with the murder, Jackson City threw a parade in his honor. Murley and other members of the Evers clan started fleeing Mississippi. With racial hostility boiling across the South, other civil rights heroes fell to assassins as the years passed. On February 21, 1965, minister and civil rights activist Malcolm X was killed on stage in front of 400 people. On April 4, 1968, a rooftop sniper murdered Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on a hotel balcony. In June 1968, Robert F. Kennedy was killed while campaigning for president. Robert was a lifelong champion of civil rights and, if elected to the Oval Office, would have made it his platform. Each of these assassins faced justice one way or another, all except for one, Byron Della Beckwith. He remained a free and celebrated hero of white supremacy. Despite the bloody decade, civil rights slowly moved forward. President Lyndon B. Johnson kept Kennedy's progressive policies alive, championing the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Although racial inequality and institutionalized racism persist today, the Jim Crow era was finally over. Likewise, for 30 years, Murley never gave up on a brighter future for her children. She grew in status as an NAACP symbol and the widow of martyred Medgar Evers. Then, in 1994, new charges were brought against Byron. To build the case, Medgar's body was exhumed to find new evidence. He was impeccably preserved due to the embalming. She later arranged a second funeral. Her grown children had a final chance to see their father again, as if looking into the past. Armed with a slew of new evidence, the prosecution successfully indicted Byron on February 5, 1994. 30 years after killing Medgar, his killer was sentenced to life in prison. Murley announced to the press outside the courthouse that Medgar finally received justice. 
A highly decorated activist today, she continues to work with the NAACP. Meanwhile, Byron Della Beckwith's white supremacist friends couldn't save him anymore. He died in jail on January 21st, 2001, at the age of 80. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskin, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Daniel William Gonzalez, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, and fact-checking by Amber Hurley. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new ParCast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who are far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify.